Today we're looking at Matthew 13. We're going to go all the way from verse 1 through 23 because it is a whole. My question for you is this. Which soil are you? Which soil are you? Now, I know you may not think of yourself as a soil, but Jesus is describing four different kinds of soil here in this passage. And it certainly is appropriate to to think about yourself as soil in this regard, figuratively. Let me, get, let me just make sure we're all together in the context here before we look at Matthew 13, though. Uh, hopefully you remember in uh, chapters 9 through 12, Jesus has been uh, dealing with unbelief, uh, particularly unbelief in the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so after these demonstrations of belief in, in Matthew 9 through 12, Jesus' disciples were left with a question as we come to chapter 13 here. And the question is this, what now? All right, so what now? Think about it. If Israel's king is here, which he was, but Israel's king is rejected, how will the long-promised kingdom be pursued then? What's going to happen to this kingdom that Jesus and John the Baptist have been talking about? So uh, we come to this point in Matthew, and the disciples are a bit confused Matthew 13 is really Jesus' attempt to kind of walk the disciples through these changes and kind of help, help them with their confusion. They couldn't figure out what was happening. They had many questions. I mean, just think about it. If Jesus was the Messiah King, then why all this nasty opposition that, that he was receiving? Well, naturally, they had questions. And if Jesus was the king, why did the religious leaders not get it? They didn't get it, did they? If Jesus was the Messiah, why were people not following him in droves? Why not everybody? If Jesus was the king, then what happened to the kingdom? If the king is not getting the attention that he deserves, well, what about the kingdom then? Well, our text for today is really going to answer those questions. And really, the whole, the whole uh, chapter 13 will help with those questions and others. So I guess one of my, my one questions that I want you to be answered from our text today is this. Why don't more people respond to the king? You ever wondered that? You go and talk to people about Christ and the gospel. Why, why, is, why is it that most people you're going to talk to, they reject the king? They reject Jesus Christ. Why do some respond in faith to the Messiah while others do not? That's the question. Well, in Matthew 13, Jesus' discourse, this sermon, if you will, this teaching, answers these questions in such a way that those who are genuinely seeking the answers are going to find them. So what we're going to find here is Jesus is purposely revealing truth, and then he's concealing truth, on the other hand, to those who who are opposed to him. In fact, we're going to see that. that. That's one of the purposes of the parables. He spells it right out here for us. He's revealing and concealing within these parables. But then on the other hand, uh, fortunately, there are, uh, unfortunately, there are those who have rejected Christ. They don't understand. They're not going to understand. Uh, they don't accept the truth. So Matthew 13 is kind of like a turning point, if, if you will almost like a hinge on a, 
on a door kind of. Uh, up until now, Jesus has been teaching, uh, for the most part, in synagogues, in these, these places, these buildings of worship, if you will. But now we come to Matthew 13, and Jesus is actually on the beach. If you, if we see that there uh, uh, in verse 1, Matthew 13, verse 1, which says, That same day Jesus went out of the house, and he sat beside the sea. So he's on the beach there at the Sea of Galilee. So that's one of the turning points we see. Uh, further change is the use of parables. The fully developed parable appears here for the first time. Now he's kind of been giving this teaching in a minor way in other places in Matthew, but it's fully developed here now. And you, and you might be asking, well, what is a parable anyway? Well, let me give you a couple definitions that might be helpful to you. Here's what one commentator said. A parable may take the form of a story or a simile or a metaphor. It is an appeal from what people know in the realm of ordinary life to truths Jesus wants to teach in the spiritual life. End quote. Well, the classic definition that I grew up with, I remember even as a little, a little twerp, was uh, a parable is this. It's, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In other words, Jesus is using the stuff that people are familiar with. In this case, it's a farming story to, to teach something that has spiritual truth. Let me uh, make this comment in regards to Matthew 13. Uh, some have called this the parable of the sower. I prefer to call it the parable of the soils because... That's where Jesus' predominant emphasis is. Uh, the, the sower is mentioned, but basically we, we know nothing about him. And it does, it says, it, the passage says very little about a, a sower. So the emphasis is on the soils. And in fact, there's four kinds of soils. And uh, that artwork there represents, as you can see, the various soils. And notice they're in a heart shape within each one of those people. Because what we're talking about here is the soil is really your heart. It's, it's people's hearts. What, what's going on inside these people? Well, God knows, and he's going to talk about these four. The parable revolves around proclaiming the saving gospel and then heralding the word about the king and his kingdom. The main teaching has to do with the heart soils on which the truth of the word of God falls. It is sown. Uh, the sower goes out and sows this seed, which we'll, we'll talk about what all these things are. Jesus explains them. We'll get that to in a moment. But Jesus mentions four different soils here on which the seed falls as, as the sower is going around broadcasting the seed. And it represents these four kinds of hearts that hear the gospel. It represents how these various people and their their heart responds to the gospel and how they respond to Christ. Now, why was Jesus telling this story? Well, remember the context. Remember the context. He was preparing the apostles. And, and for that fact, he's preparing everybody who is a proclaimer of the gospel to understand that people are different. They're going to respond differently to the gospel and to the kingdom and to Christ, who is the king of this kingdom. So we need to understand these, these four basic kinds of hearers. Uh, you and I will encounter these four different kinds of people as we go around 
proclaiming the message to people. So let's look at the parable of the soils here. First of all, we see the setting in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. That's our setting. Now let, me just, let me just remind you, uh, yes, we, we are kind of transitioning here in this chapter, but this comes within the greater context of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you look at the first few words of verse 1, that shows you they're linking chapters 9 through 12 with this chapter. Look at the first two words, that first two in particular, it was first three, says that same day, that same day. That's linking this, these parables here, particularly to uh, chapter 12, which we saw in chapter 12, the rejection of Jesus and the opposition to him was mounting. It's getting more pronounced. So it's especially uh, linking these parables to this rejection that Jesus has encountered. And so what does Jesus do? He's, he's in the house. This is, if you remember the end of chapter 12, he was, he was there in the house teaching and uh, he was with his disciples, and other people of the crowd were there. And so we come to chapter 13, and it says he leaves the house, and he goes out of the house, to, apparently to teach, and he, what does he do? He sits on the shore of the lake, and he takes the position of a Jewish rabbi, and proceeds to teach his students. Now, <clears throat> you need to understand something about Jewish rabbis. When they would teach, they would sit. That was the normal position for a Jewish rabbi to teach. They would sit. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. Rabbis, uh, they would often stand, though, when, when they were preaching for some reason. I haven't found out why that difference. But anyway, but Jesus is sitting. He's teaching. But what we see is that Jesus' popularity is continuing to grow here. D- despite, uh, of course, people have left him and there has been opposition uh, there's, there's a lot of people here. Notice it, it does say there's a crowd. And so Jesus is, is having a hard time teaching this crowd, so what does he do? We see in verse 2 he gets into a boat, and so he can kind of get away from the crowd a little bit. The water kind of helps project your voice, and this way he's able to, to, to see and, and to hear, and, and they can hear, and he can teach properly. And then starting in verse 3, Jesus proceeds as he's, he's out there in that boat to give the parable of the soils. So let's, let's read uh, starting in verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, as you can see, I hope there, you'll notice Jesus has broken this parable up into four parts. There's four different uh, hearts that are, or soils that are receiving 
this seed. So let's, let me just uh, look at them individually. Uh, first of all, we have the seeds on the path. Now, in the ancient world, you need to understand, uh, well, we've got this cultural barrier going on here, right? Uh, what, what happened in the ancient world uh, is, is often different from what we are used to. So even if you're a farmer, you might have some cultural barriers you have to deal with here. And so farmers would, they would uh, go around and they'd sow their seed by hand, just like uh, the farmer's doing there in the picture. And so he'd pull the seed out of the bag and he'd scatter it on the ground. Now, I was reading uh, about this. It's, it's been debated that, uh, you know, well, did these first century farmers, did they plow the ground first and then go cast their seed out? Or did they cast the seed out first and then go and plow the ground? Well, depends on who you read. (laughs) So I've kind of come to the conclusion after reading all this stuff that uh, the answer is yes. Uh, Not everybody necessarily did the same thing. Some might only plow once. uh, But then from what I read, there were some people who would plow before they cast the seed and they would also plow after the seed was cast. So, th- so there was many who would do both. So I guess, you know, each to his own. It uh, doesn't really matter, but uh, it, was, it was interesting to, to read that anyway. So what would happen here anyway was they would have this, uh, uh, this the seed in the bag, and the, and the sower would come along, and he would throw this out. And what would happen is because there was, was these paths that would go right through the middle of, of people's fields, is what would happen is sometimes the, the wind might carry some of the seed over onto that hard-packed path where people had been walking for, you know, who knows, centuries maybe. So most likely a farmer didn't intend for the seed to fall on that hard-packed soil, but uh, maybe, maybe it was probably, you know, that's what happens when you're casting out seed in that form. And so because the seed could not be hidden in the dirt, what would happen is the birds, birds love eating seeds, so they would come along and they would pick the seed off the hard-packed path. And uh, if you're wondering why are these hard-packed paths, well, you know, there wasn't these nice, neat boundaries necessarily around people's property. And so people would often, write, they would just, they'd have these paths going right through the middle of their fields, and that would be the place where people would walk to and from their houses or wherever else they were going. And if you walk over a piece of ground enough times, it's going to become very, very hard. And so that's what happened. And, of course, birds love to eat the seeds. And so the birds, you know, if you've ever seen a farmer out in his field plowing a field, a lot of times you see birds going along behind the plow or or the, the planter or whatever they're doing. Birds love to eat that stuff. But the second kind here of the second kind of ground is the stony ground and so sometimes seed would encounter a uh, a limestone layer that would just be underneath the soil and the farmer may not even know it's there and and here's what happens Uh, the stony underlay would trap the moisture from the rain and so there'd be at first there'd be plenty of moisture for for the for the seed to to take root and and to grow uh, because that, that stony ground, that limestone, would keep the moisture at the surface. And so you'd have this amazing growth at the beginning. Quickly the, the seed would, would sprout up. But 
it would never really develop deep roots so that it could, it could live when, when that hot sun would come out. And so the seedlings in the shallow soil, uh, at the start, they would be immersed in, in moisture. They'd sprout up rapidly. But because of that, that stony underlayer, that limestone, it would actually keep the plant from, from developing deep roots. It needs those deep roots to get down to the moisture when the sun would come out. And so as a result, the fast growth would just be short-lived, and the plant would, uh, as, as Jesus said, it was burnt by the sun, and then it just shriveled up and, and, and died. It was parched. The third kind of ground that seed fell on was, was amongst thorns. And so these thorns are a, a type of a weed. They would have a very strong root, uh, like a, you know, a lot of weeds seem to thrive better in droughts than, than other things. And, and so these are some sort of a weed with a strong root. And so what it would do is it would steal the moisture away from the soil and in the process it would end up choking out the good seed. And then the last one is the good soil. There was some seed, Jesus said, where, where the seed actually fell on good soil and uh, the, the farmer was able to, to have some, some, some uh, fruit was produced, uh, well, grain in this case. Uh, notice in verse 8 that uh, it's not always the same. There's different results in people's lives. Now, remember, this, these seeds represent people, and Jesus is saying, well, hey, some, some's a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So it's not always the same in, in us. But Jesus gives a warning in verse 9. And the warning is to listen carefully. <laughs> in verse 9 he said, He who has ears, let him hear. So here Jesus calls for, for number one, a willingness to listen. That's where it starts. You've got to have ears to hear, this willingness to listen, or else, you know, otherwise you're just going to be unteachable. The, the, the seed of truth is just not going to get in, if you will. But he's also giving us motivation to respond properly to the, to the message. In other words, what I'm saying is this, that Jesus is demanding a serious self-examination here. All right? so what, what Jesus doesn't want you to do is just sit there in your seat and say, well, that's a very cool story. That's interesting. But Jesus wants you to apply it to you. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, right in the midst of this parable, before Jesus goes on to explain the parable to us, he gives the purpose of the parables. Starting in verse 10, the disciples have this question for Jesus because they're listening to Jesus' teaching, and, and here's a natural question that anyone might ask. Look at verse 10. Everyone looking at that? Put your eyeballs on, on, on Scripture there. Verse 10 says, Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Good question. Why are you using these earthly stories with these spiritual meanings, these heavenly meanings? Well, why are you doing this? Well, Jesus proceeds to go on and tell the disciples why he's doing this. And the first answer really is, well, let me put it in the, in the simple form before we get to the more complex. All right, There's really two points that Jesus is doing here. He's revealing and he's concealing. He's, he's revealing to the, to the insiders, and he's concealing to the outsiders. He's revealing the truth, 
in this story form, to those who believe. But at the same time, Jesus has said, I'm going to conceal the truth from those who have rejected me. And that's why he's using this particular form to teach. And that's the simple answer, all right? That's my answer, uh, coming from Jesus' answer. But uh, let's, uh, let's expand on that. Number one, here, here's Jesus' first answer. He wants to show the difference between the insiders and the outsiders. He wants to show the difference between the believers and the unbelievers. Look at verse 11. And he answered them, the disciples, to you, these are the insiders, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus wants them to understand there is a difference between the insider and the outsider, the, the believer and the unbeliever. There's, it's, it's quite interesting to me in this, this very text, there is a strong emphasis on divine election. There, there is a group of people here who believe. Interestingly enough, you look at verse 11, Jesus uses those words, it has been given. Who, who, who's the one doing the giving? Of course, God's the one giving. He's, he's the one doing the giving. And, and the very Greek word there is impassive. It's impassive. It's not active. They're not the one doing this. God is the one who's doing this. They're just passively receiving it. In other words, what I'm saying is God's chosen to reveal his mysteries or his secrets to a select few. And, and, and the select few, in this case, is Jesus' followers. However, on the other side of the coin, so to speak, at the same time as, as we see divine election, we also see human responsibility within the same text. Human responsibility is distinctly present in this particular text. The disciples, for example, have accepted Jesus' teaching. They are, they're following Jesus. But then on the other hand, we have those who have rejected Jesus. They're opposing him. And, and so these truths... Uh, are being concealed from them because they've purposely rejected Jesus. So that's human responsibility. So we see the election, uh, uh, God's work, but there is human responsibility in this as well. And then we come to verses 13 through 17, and Jesus kind of gives us a second answer here for his parables, and, and he's essentially using these parables to show their guilt, they're guilty, and, and it's, it's showing that a God's punishment on them for their guilt. But in a way, it's also merciful. Because God says, to whom much is given, much will be required. So if God continually gives those who have rejected him, particularly those who have committed the unpardonable sin, if they continually are given good teaching, they, they are actually condemning themselves even greater with greater punishment and greater guilt. So to conceal truth from them is, is, a, is, is mercy from God. Well, look what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. <laughs> so in case you don't understand why Jesus is doing this, he says, this is why I'm doing it. Because seeing they do not see... And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, 
And here's, here's coming from Isaiah. Here's what it says. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes. And hear with their ears. And understand with their heart. And turn. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes. For they see. And your ears. For they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In verses 14 and 15, it's introducing this, this passage, which is coming from Isaiah chapter 6, by the way. If you have a, have a Bible with cross-references, I hope that's in your Bible. And I hope you have one of those Bibles that has, uh, uh, from verse 14 to the end of verse 15. I hope that looks a little different in your Bible. If it does, that's just showing you it's, it's, it's a quotation from the book of Isaiah. In this case, it's coming from chapter 6. And if you know anything about the context there, that is Isaiah, Isaiah's commissioning service. He sees a holy God who is high and lifted up on his throne. Uh, we see angels there, seraphim in particular, surrounding God's throne. And the prophet is told by God to, to take to the people a message that's actually going to cause rejection by this apostate nation. <laughs> wow, that's not a nice thing to hear, but that's what God told Isaiah. But then when we come to Matthew, Jesus sees the, the people, this nation of Israel, who for the most part had rejected him, and he sees the same in this current generation of Israelites. The same thing that, that Isaiah said saw in chapter 6 there. So sadly, the, pil- the people still see God's work in Jesus, but what are they doing with it? They're failing to perceive it. They failed to perceive it. They failed to see it. And so Jesus is comparing the current generation to what, the, what, what Israel was like in Isaiah's time. Right? So that's what's going on there in verses 14 and 15. Well, let's move on to the interpretation of the parable. Jesus doesn't leave us to just sit in the dark wondering, how do you interpret this stuff? By the way, let me just tell you, parables over the centuries have, they've had really bad interpretations. (laughs) Uh, There's wild and fanciful stuff out there on, on the parables of the Bible. And really what it comes down to is the hermeneutic. Uh, so let me suggest to you, you, you come to even the parables that Jesus gives and interpret them predominantly literally. Now there's two ways of interpreting literally. There's, there's the plain literal sense and there's a figurative literal sense. Right? Uh, sometimes you, you'll have to use both. So just, just take it at face value in its plain, normal sense for the most part and you'll you probably understand it correctly. But if you want to allegorize it and spiritualize it, well then, the problem with that is then we start inserting our ideas into the text and, and, and basically you can make the text say whatever you want when you start doing that. There's great danger. So beware, okay? I, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm interpreting this literally, and in this case, we don't even really hardly need to interpret because Jesus explains the parable to us. Let's look at Jesus' interpretation. And we see, first of all, that the seed that falls on the path is referring to the unresponsive hearer. It's the unresponsive hearer. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So if you're wondering what was Jesus talking about in the preceding context here, he, he, he just tells you what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody's heart who's unresponsive to the seed, to the truth. So the hard-packed soil beside the road here represents the person who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. And the reason he doesn't understand it is, well, it's, it's not due to some lack in the message, but it's, it's his own hard heart. And that's why Jesus is using a hard path here to represent a hard heart. This person is... Uh, described as being stiff-necked elsewhere in Scripture. He's unconcerned with the things of God. He's completely indifferent to anything spiritual. Uh, The Word makes uh, absolutely no penetration into this person's mind or his heart. He doesn't give the Gospel any consideration. It's, It's like when you walk up to someone and you try to give the good news of the Gospel to someone, you, you try to tell them, you know, hey, you're a sinner, uh, that's the bad news, but I got some good news, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. You know, you, you try to tell them that sort of stuff, and they're really hard. They could care less. And uh, sometimes they might slam a door in your face, they might say, I don't want to hear this, leave me alone, get out of my face, or whatever. That's, that's the kind of unresponsive hearer that Jesus is talking about here. And so the word makes no penetration. The seed of God's word is exposed to the enemy of the soul. And in this case, Jesus is talking about the, the devil. He's talking about Satan here. Uh, he is he's described in this case kind of like, like the birds. And so the evil one, what does he do? He comes and he snatches away the seed from the person's heart before it ever has a chance to take root. And so his lack of repentance leaves him utterly exposed to Satan's attack. That's what Jesus says about the unresponsive hearer. Then in verse 20, Jesus talks about the superficial hearer. Look at verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately, he falls away. This is a superficial hearer. Uh, that's, that's the best way I can describe it to you in, in a short little phrase. So we've got a, a second different kind of soil here. This soil has no depth, remember, because of rocks or limestone layer underneath a thin layer of soil. And so in this case, the soil represents someone who hears the word. And... and and in this case, the word actually takes a little bit of a root, but, and Jesus said it's received with joy, 
the person gets a little bit excited about hearing the gospel, actually very excited, and, and so there's a quick response to the gospel. It seems as if he's been waiting eagerly to hear this wonderful message, and he can't embrace it soon enough. You ever met that kind of a person? It's, it's like they've been waiting to, for you to come and talk to them all their life. It's like the Holy Spirit has, has prepared them to hear the, the good news of the gospel. Oh, those, those people are, I must say, are a joy to talk to. But sadly, sadly, as Jesus says here, uh, it doesn't last. And so this person offers no resistance at all to the gospel. Uh, you know, they, they love, the, you know, they love what, what a Christian says to them. They love what the Bible says to them. Uh, you, you can't give them enough. But instead of manifesting um, uh, resistance, they're, they're emotionally excited about the message. And so this superficial convert, what they do is they accept the message of salvation and they receive the gospel with open arms and, you know, and they want to come to church and, and usually these kind of people do come to church and you'll see them in church for a while, but they fall away because Jesus says, and by the way, fall away is, is apostasy there, literally apostasy. They, they fall away from Christ and the truth because of persecution, because there's, you know, hey, apparently they got saved for the wrong reasons. And that's part of the danger, by the way, in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. See, if you, if you give that kind of a gospel out to somebody, you know, hey, come to Christ, and he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, wise, and uh, prosper, uh, prosperous, and so forth. Well, guess what? If you feed them that kind of a gospel... And it doesn't come true? What, what do you think is going to happen to that kind of a person? They're going to do exactly this. They're going to fall away. They're not going to last because they don't have a deep root. So this kind of a person can't wait to tell everybody of the new meaning, the purpose, the happiness of life, so to, fee, so to speak. Uh, you know, the, the soil of his heart is, is shallow, and so he has no firm root within himself. And so all the change is where? It's just on the surface. There, there's no depth in the heart. And so all the change is just, because it's on the surface, there's no depth of heart. And, and, uh, in the, and when the circumstances change, well, that's when it all falls apart. So his feelings were changed in this case, but not the soul. There's no soul change. There's no heart change. God's life-giving word cannot take root because, uh, because of this rocky base. It makes it hard for the word of God to penetrate. So in this case, again, there's no repentance, no true repentance, no remorse over sin. There's no recognition of lostness. There's, there's no contrition. There's no brokenness. There's no humility. Uh, and by the way, all those things I just mentioned are the first mark of true conversion. And if you don't believe me, Jesus already talked about that in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. He, notice he said the first one is, you must be what? Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. <laughs> and then you must mourn over your sin. Those are the first marks of a genuine believer. But sadly... You, you realize part of the problem is us in our deficient gospel presentations. We want to go and talk to, about God being love 
Well, of course God is love. But somebody has to recognize they're a sinner. They have to recognize they're lost. They need to come to God in humility, recognizing they're poor in spirit. They have nothing to offer God except their sin. And that's certainly not impressive to him. Somebody has to recognize that first before they're ever, ever going to have the deep root. So part of the problem is our deficient gospel presentations. So this person, what do they do? They hear the gospel. It, it, it gives them some sort of a religious experience, but it's, it's only on the outside. It's, it's shallow, and it does not bring lasting salvation, not true salvation. And you say, how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, the answer is, Jesus said, the evidence for us is the fact that when affliction or persecution and difficulty arises because of the word, notice that, it's because of the word, what does this person do? He immediately falls away. Life gets a little bit difficult. Uh, he, you know, he might expect his friends to respond in joy just as he did, but his friends start making fun of him, start ignoring him, and start persecuting him. And then he realizes, well, this isn't as good as I thought it'd be. And so when the cost of discipleship becomes too high, this person actually rejects Christ and becomes lost. And you basically never see that person come into the doors of the church again. That's the superficial here. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 22 to talk about the worldly hearer. The worldly hearer. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. This is a worldly hearer. So we have this third patch of soil, and in this case it's a little different. It's it's actually infested with thorns, and that represents the man who hears the word of God, but is too worldly for the word of God to actually take root and, and grow in this person's heart. This person hears the word of the gospel, appears to make a profession of faith, but his first love is for something other than God. His first love, notice Jesus says, this person's first love is for the things of the world. He's preoccupied with the cares of the world. He's, he, he cares more about his bank account. This person cares more about his pleasures and, and so forth. He's preoccupied with those things that are blinding him to the importance of the gospel. He loves riches. He lives as, as if the answer to his greatest needs and desires are those riches and pleasures he's oblivious to the deceitfulness notice jesus uses the word deceitful or deceitfulness of riches so this person is deceived by their own riches and so because of that he doesn't notice that his worldliness is actually choking the word his attention is on something other than god and on the, the word of god his attention's on his own riches, his own possessions, his, his attention's on his own prestige, his image, his position, his house, his boat, his caravan, his batch, so forth. And so he, he, he's not even aware of his spiritual life. He's not aware that his life is totally unfruitful. Now there, the point, 
the point you need to see, and well, one of the points you need to see is that there are few barriers to the gospel that are greater than the love of riches and of the world. In fact, the Bible talks about those things. Beware. In fact, Jesus said, don't love the world. Do not love the things in the world either, he says. We've been warned about that in 1 John chapter 2. A professing believer who is unconcerned about sin in his life and doesn't hate evil, doesn't love righteousness, is not giving strong evidence that, that the heart has actually been converted and regenerated. This kind of person will eventually discover his, his love of the world and his identification with Christ. Word cannot coexist together. And so if his faith is genuine, what do you do if your faith is genuine? Someone who's real forsakes the world. If his faith is not genuine, his sin is going to choke out what knowledge of the word he has. And what could this person look like, you might ask? What could this person look like? Well, I was trying to think, well, you know... Let's get real. Let's, where's the rubber meet the road here? What, is, what does this person look like? Well, he could be a person who, who possibly is sitting right here at the moment. Jesus might be talking about you. It could be somebody who, who goes to church but never becomes committed to serving God in any way. This person might be continually preoccupied with money or uh, you might be preoccupied with your career. You might be preoccupied with fashion, or you might be preoccupied with sport. It could be anything other than the Lord's work. (laughs) And so even good things can be weeds in our life that actually choke out the Word of God. All right? You know, for example, sport in and of itself is not evil. But what happens sometimes is sport actually becomes a barrier between us and and our fellowship with God. And in that case, it is evil when, it, when that happens. So even good things can be weeds. And so a person who claims to love Christ, but, but who cannot remain faithful in their marriage, guess what? That person has a weedy heart. And so the person refuses to let go of his worldliness as a person in whom the seed of God's saving gospel has not found deep root has been choked. And so there's, there's this danger of being choked out altogether because of these things Jesus is talking about here. These, these weeds, these cares of the world and the, the deceitfulness of riches. Okay? Do we, do we have cares of the world? Of course we do. Does God give us money? Of course He does. Right? Uh, you know, those, those things may not be evil in and of themselves, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. We all have things we have to do. I mean, for example, we have to go home and, and we'll have to cook lunch and we'll have to eat lunch and we'll have to drink and tonight we'll have to go to bed and go to sleep and you might, you might need to do some work around the house, okay? And so forth, right? Those are cares of the world. You have to do those sort of things. It's not appropriate for you to be lazy and sit around doing nothing. Of course not. But what you don't want to happen is to become to a point where you're so preoccupied with those things, then the Word of God is choked out, okay? That's, that's the danger that we have in living in this world. 
Well, fortunately, Jesus doesn't end there. He goes on to verse 23, and he tells us about the receptive hearer. Look at verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So this fourth patch of soil, of course, is good soil. It's... It's ready to receive the seed. It's, there's, there's nothing in, in the way. Uh, it, it's it's going to take deep root. And obviously, as you can see, there's bearing fruit of various kinds. So why is it good? Well, it's good, number one, because it's rightly prepared. You say, how is it prepared? Well, how, how is the heart prepared to receive the gospel, to receive the message of the kingdom? Well, it's prepared by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, a heart becomes receptive to God. And so this person, this soil represents hearers of the word, and in this case, they're understanding the word. And what is the barrier to salvation? I think we've talked about this before. The, the barrier to salvation is unbelief. And so anyone who is willing to accept Christ on his, on his terms is described in this case as good soil. He hears the word. Why? Because, he, because God honors his humility. He comes with this, this attitude of being poor in spirit. His spiritual ears are open to the truth. He wants the spiritual truth. And so he understands the gospel. And this, of course, is great news. And so Jesus here wants to encourage us that despite, despite the hardness, the... Uh, the, the shallowness, despite the worldliness that are represented in the thorns, there's always people that you and I are going to come across who are this kind of soil, good soil. And by good soil, again, I'm referring to the kind of people where the gospel can take root and where the gospel can flourish in their hearts. Always going to be those kind of people. And so when you go out and you witness and you're, you're talking to your family and your friends, your workmates and other people you, you, you may not even know, you need to pray that the Spirit of God would go before you and, and would work in people's heart, give you divine appointments. Because if the Spirit of God's not working in their heart, it's like casting your seed on, on those other kinds of places, the path or the stony ground or the thorny ground. But praise God, there are people out there where the Holy Spirit has been working in their hearts. They're ready to receive the word. And so the ultimate mark of the genuine believer, as we see here, is what? It's fruit-bearing. That's, that that's how you can tell whether or not someone is a Christian. Jesus, in fact, said, you're to be fruit inspectors. You, you may not be able to see the heart, but you can see, what's, hey, what's growing on the tree? Is there anything growing on the tree? Well, obviously, we have apples sitting right over here. That tree's obviously alive. And how do we know the tree's alive? You can't see the inside of the tree, right? You know the tree's alive because it bore fruit. It has apples. Well, how can you tell if somebody's alive? How can you tell if they're a genuine Christian? By the fruit they bear. A Christian is growing, is bearing fruit. And so spiritual fruit is the inevitable product of spiritual life. That's what Galatians 5 tells us. Galatians 5 talks about this 
spiritual fruit, and you say, well, what does a spiritual fruit look like? It doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like an apple. <laughs> Galatians 5 says it looks like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what this kind of fruit talk looks like. And so a genuine believer is going to bear fruit. And a genuine believer is going to bear fruit of behavior too, by the way. What is on the inside must come out. And so fruit is the spiritual reality that God produces in the lives of his children. Well, the psalmist rejoiced that the believer who delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night is like what? A tree. And in this case, in Psalm 1, the tree is planted by the rivers of water. And what happens? It yields its fruit in its season, Psalm 1 says. Psalm 1 goes on to say that its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Well, let me be clear here in case you're not understanding. First of all, let me say this. We are not saved by good works. You are not saved by bearing fruit. You are not saved by any other good work. However, we are, we are saved for fruit-bearing. We are saved for good works. Do you, do you see the difference? We do good works because we're already saved. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. Here's what Ephesians 2.10 says. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, my friend, do you understand... If you're not doing good works, James says you have a dead faith. And you're probably not even a Christian. Faith without works is dead. So, God made you. You are His workmanship created for good works. Let's make just a few points of application and then we'll be done. Number one, if you harden yourself to the gospel, God will reject you. If you harden yourself to the gospel, God will reject you. The hard-packed road in this story typifies the leaders and, and other people in Israel who had committed the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin. They had, they had rejected Christ outright, right to his face, and said that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. <laughs> so not only did they not believe that he was God, they they're, they're essentially calling him something else that's just basically unspeakable. And that's hard-packed ground. And so repentance was no longer possible for those who had committed the unforgivable sin. And so Jesus' teaching on the purpose of parables centered on this particular group of, of people. And so for them, Jesus used this uh, his parables, what he was doing, he was... He was uh, to, to further confuse and darken their already hardened hearts. So my friend, what I want to say to you is beware. Beware of yourself. You always want to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Ask God to search your heart. See if there be any wicked way in you. And then for those whom you know and love, be, beware of them. Watch out for their souls as well. Number two, showing interest and excitement are not enough unless you truly come to Jesus. 
hey, you can do, you know, you, I don't know, you can sing the song, you can, you can shout hallelujah, amen, and uh, run around like a, a crazy man or whatever you want, you know, what, what some people do. But uh, that doesn't mean that you've really accepted Christ. It doesn't mean you've been regenerated or converted. And so seekers need to realize this kind of a truth. The stony ground followers show amazement and even wonder, but they don't have commitment that's going to persevere through hard times. And there's a serious warning here, isn't there? And so when people remain seekers, we've we got to watch out, by the way, because there are occasionally sometimes people come in the church and they sit amongst us, they, they continually hear the gospel, and they walk out the door having rejected Christ. My friend, it is your duty to look for those people. Make sure you're not one of them. But look for them. Pray for them. Help them as best you can. We've had people over the years, and still do. Watch out for them. And so people remain seekers. They keep coming to church week after week or occasionally. What are they doing? They're actually hardening themselves to the gospel. And the more they keep coming, it, I, I fear, I fear that, that Christ's parable might come to life and it might actually get harder for them to accept Christ sometime in the future the more they reject Him. And so until one is rooted in Christ, it's impossible to endure through difficult times of life. Well, that brings me to another point I want to make. Unless you're trusting in God, the worries of life will smother your spiritual life. You've got to be trusting in God. Okay? And by the way, don't come with unrealistic expectations. Uh, by the way, comparison kills contentment. Unrealistic expectations will kill contentment. <laughs> so my friend, where, let me ask you, where does your trust lie? Where does it lie? What is the object of your faith? Okay, It's not enough to just go around saying, hey, I have faith. <laughs> yeah? You know, what, you know what your next thought should be? If you say that or hear somebody else say that, you should say, great, what is the object? Because if you have the wrong object, you will fail to withstand, withstand the anxieties of life or, or the lure of materialism, and you're, you're going to eventually apostatize. You will fall away, Jesus says, to spiritual ruin. That's what's going to happen. And so the thorny ground followers, they have no strong roots in Christ. They're easily choked off by the pressures of life. And so when they lose their job or, or, or their, you know, their retirement fund goes down into the toilet, you know, what are they, what, what they going to do? Well, I'll tell you what some of them do, because I saw it happen in the United States. You know, people who were millionaires, and then the economy goes bottom up, they're jumping out of, out of you know, tall buildings onto concrete. That's the sort of stuff they were doing. And so their true priorities are, are their bank account, their status in the community, and, and so the pleasures of life will ultimately seduce them away from God. Their, their object of their faith is the wrong thing. And that's why the object of your faith is crucial. It's not enough to just have faith. And so, sadly, this is an area too often ignored in, in churches. I hope it's not in ours. And so we must have a strategy for these kind of a people. 
We need to have a strategy for dealing with this amongst ourselves. What do we do if we see one of, you know, somebody else in our congregation like this? Well, every Christian, number one, needs to wake up. The, um, we need to wake up, <laughs> open our eyes, ask God to open our eyes, but then we need to ha- kind of help wake up some other people who have uh, seem to have fallen asleep. Help them realize how they're wasting their lives and what ultimately will not matter. Well, that's one strategy we could do. Well, let's move on to point number four. What what else can we do here? We must live a fruitful life for Christ. You must live a fruitful life for Christ. Okay? I, I hope your goal is to be, you may not get there, but I hope your goal is, as Jesus said, Hey, I want to be one of those people who's bearing a hundredfold. Now, we're not all the same. All right? So, you may never get to that point. You, you might be the 60 or the 30. But if, if that's the best that you can do, well, then be content with that. So, we've got to live fruitful lives for Christ. That's what committed followers of Christ do. They bear fruit. They multiply their effectiveness for His glory. So let me ask you, my friends, how are you doing? Are you multiplying your effectiveness for Christ's glory? Are you? Are you being effective? Are you bearing fruit? The Bible says God made us to glorify Him, and He's placed within each of us seeds of greatness that are going to multiply by either 100 or 60 or 30. And so in the end... God decides how much it grows. Not you. God decides how much it grows. Okay? If God made you a 30, be content. If God made you a 100, be content. But whatever God made you, 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 better, you better use those, those gifts and abilities God has given to you and bear that kind of fruit and then do it for His honor and His glory. But in the midst of this, we must surrender to His power that is at work in us. Surrender to His power that is at work in us. So may God enable us to bear much fruit for His glory. 